Hi everyone, it's Gracie with Self Care with Gracie. Welcome back to the podcast. It's really exciting. Friday morning, I have here. I have a guest, uh, Stephanie Newman. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, Stephanie is a. Um, what would you What would you call your title, actually? Oh my goodness, <laughs> I've thought about this, but um, it still continues to evolve. I would say a combination of a founder and a writer. I love it. I'm going to read your bio here. I think that'll give a little bit more of a picture as well. Stephanie Newman helps women build businesses that align with their feminist values. She believes that some of the best wisdom for founders is hidden inside books written by trailblazing women long before the internet. After studying literature at Harvard, living as an expat writer in Berlin, and consulting for multi-billion dollar corporations, she embraced feminism as a way to help her navigate the gray area between making money and finding meaning. Most recently, she launched an online course that teaches socially conscious women how to launch their businesses. So I met Stephanie uh, through our friend Rachel. Hi, Rachel. A Conscious Company (laughs) magazine. And she connected us because we both work with women around in empowering pursuits of helping women, you know, get the most out of their lives and feel like they're aligned with who they authentically are. So when Rachel uh, put us together for a phone conversation, immediately we just connected over what it was like to bring our stories of who we are as women and what we've learned into work helping other women do the same. And we particularly connected over um, wanting to really research our lineages of going to Eastern Europe. So I'll, I'll let you take it from there, Stephanie, but I'd, I'd like for you to start by talking about your own story of how, how you've been learning that balance between making money and finding meaning in your life. Yes. Um, so it's, it's quite tricky. And I think it was an issue that for me started to become apparent right as I was graduating college, which makes sense. I think for me, I was really lucky. I went to a liberal arts school and I was able to focus on what really inspired me and engaged me while knowing that I was in this environment that was in itself a safety net. Um, So I think when I was graduating, I was really coming to terms with the fact that, you know, several years back, I had to start making a living and the things I had come to love in college, like writing and doing research and being creative, just had no clear path forward. And it definitely preoccupied me and stressed me out. Um, And as I advanced in my career, first I started off in marketing and then I became a management consultant. And then I wanted more creativity and independence. So I left and started first my consulting firm, Stelia Labs, and then my feminist media platform, Writing on Glass. I just realized that it was not clear cut. It was not clear cut. It was not black and white. And to me, there was just such rich material there. I really wanted to help other women start to explore it because I do think so many times, at least I think of this trade-off between the corporate world and feeling like you're working for quote unquote the man versus being a starving artist in a garret and really burrowing away to focus on your craft without getting compensated for it. So to me, this is a feminist issue as well as a career issue. And I think it's really potent for women in particular. So that's what got me thinking about all of this. 
one thing that's that's I keep coming back to in the work that I do is I, I think a lot of the, the work that both of us do is aligned around feminine values that we're we're about cooperative ventures and we're about doing things that are good for the whole and not just for individual gain and, and things that I see as being more feminine um, powers. Not that men cannot yes. contain these as well, but they're they're feminine in, in our world. It, like the masculine, especially in the marketplace, is really valued. And so I think yeah. we can talk and talk about, you know, how feminine is important, but until we actually like value it with money, which is how we value things in our culture, it's it's still going to be something like caretaking, which is something that's incredibly challenging as a, as a new mother. I'm really feeling this. And it's something that we don't compensate. Like the people that do it professionally don't get compensated very well for caretaking. People who do it in the home don't get compensated at all. And so what I, what I really feel when you speak is that this, this is like our moment to not shy away from having the conversation around money as well as like matching that with the meaning. I totally agree. Um, and even the emotional labor that takes place if you're working in the corporate world, right, that mostly falls on women and they're not paid extra for that either. All of the, you know, conversations among colleagues trying to soothe over conflicts and all of those things that aren't even in a job description. Anybody who's worked in a corporate office, any of you listeners out there, I, I'm willing to bet that you've seen it happen and it's mostly been women facilitating that emotional labor. Yes. Yes. Well, can you speak a little bit more about what emotional labor is? I, I sense mm -hmm. that everyone who's listening does it in some way, but it's, I feel like it's a new vocabulary that's starting to come up recently. It's true. And there is so much of this vocabulary that's becoming part of feminism now. And I think it can sometimes be alienating. So I'm happy you asked uh, me to unpack the term. So emotional labor, as I understand it, is the work that goes into managing another person's emotions um, so in feminism, a lot of people talk about women taking on the role of even in a marriage. Um, if you're in a heterosexual marriage, your husband might not have been raised or socialized to really deal with their emotions the same way. And I've had female friends telling me, you know, it's like pulling teeth to get their partner to talk about their emotions. Um, whereas we as women have oftentimes been raised to be very conscious of how we're feeling and to prioritize the expression of our feelings. So that's a skill. And it's a skill that women oftentimes have just better developed because of the way I think we're socialized. Um, so that can play into our work lives as well. So working with male colleagues who might not, uh, as you mentioned, Gracie, really, first of all, place that value financially or just, you know, conceptually on emotional work, on all of those office conversations, the facilitating so that no one's feelings are hurt, the making sure that everyone gets along, the consensus seeking, a lot of that falls to women and a lot of it is not paid or paid extra beyond if the person is, you know, a, an accountant or a marketer beyond what they'd be paid to do their regular job responsibilities. Yeah, yes. I, um, I think it's, it's just something that's so subtle that we do it and we don't even know that we're doing it, but then we feel incredibly drained after doing it for long periods of time. And yeah. it's, it's something that I notice and I work with, with my clients when they, especially in relationships like with a partner or in a workplace where they feel like they're doing all of the emotional labor is to see if you can kind of give 50% of it back. So that's the idea. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, I think for me, it's not realistic to really, you know, not care at all. I think that's sort oh, of like yeah. this thing of like, oh, just don't care anymore. I'm like, I am always going to care, but could I care 50% less? And could, you know, 
that leave more responsibility for other people. And I really notice it in my partnership that when I'm doing all the emotional labor, we're, we're buying a house right now and it's just a very emotional process. And I was noticing I was doing all the emotional labor on it. My partner wasn't. And I, I just stepped back a little bit and I felt like it balanced out. And so it's that thing mm. that like, I, I think we just normally we're so used to doing it that we don't even question that we're not allowed to do it or we can do it less in some way. Yeah. So, but I also feel like it, it needs to be, compensated as well um yeah I totally totally agree well I'm you mentioned in your bio and and I heard this when you were speaking about this black and white thinking and the gray area and I I think of all the clients that I've had and all the people I know out there who really want to leave their jobs and don't feel like they're in alignment with their values and and the work that they're doing or they're not able to practice self-care in their workplaces but then the fear is so strong about like well it's either that I have this job and everything is you know financially going well but I'm like sucking the life out of me or I'm the starving artist and I can't afford to pay my mortgage and so I think it's that feeling of being stuck. And so I'm really intrigued when you talk about a gray area. Can you explain more about that? Yes, absolutely. And a lot of my clients, I do some coaching. So a lot of my coaching clients and students are in that position and I was in that position. So I identify so strongly with that fear. Uh, So for me, the gray area is first of all, realizing that there are so many hidden opportunities that you don't really see until you start putting yourself out there so to make this more concrete, um, I can even tell a story about about myself just to help bring this into a more illustrative place. Um, so when I was at my full-time management consulting job, I just figured that anybody who was freelancing probably couldn't really afford to pay their rent every month or didn't have health care or, I don't know, would eventually have to enter the corporate world to make ends meet. And that belief that was just based on a bias I had um, and like cultural stereotypes, I guess, of people in the corporate world being wealthier really prevented me from even exploring what freelancing might look like, even though I had this feeling deep down that I would be so much happier if I were more independent and creative in my job. What I noticed when I decided that I wanted to leave my job and started putting out feelers was that actually a lot of my friends who had gone that creative route, and I was lucky to have friends who had done that, and who were freelancing, were actually making more money than me. So not only were they happier, but they actually were more financially stable. Um, So, I mean, for me, one of the gray areas is starting to explore through conversation and starting to, you know, put yourself out there and really hear what other people are telling you if they are freelancing or pursuing the career that you want, what is it that you're missing in the picture? Is your black and white conception of what the job landscape looks like actually just not accurate? And if so, what are those hidden truths that you can cling onto and um, you know start to bring into clarity for yourself so that you can take the actions you need to take? Which you know for me that was leaving my job, having this new trust that if my friends were able to build these great creative independent careers and actually have more money coming in every year, then I knew there was a possibility I could do that too. And that really got me through the fear. It's, it's like, yeah, seeing role models and examples has been one of the best ways for me to take risks in my career. I've, mm-hmm. I've, 
pretty much never worked in an office. I did it for a little less than a year and I, I got myself mm-hmm. into like a very toxic work environment immediately. And I just, I reacted mm-hmm. so strongly that I don't, I started having like anxiety, panic attacks being there. Yeah. And, and I just knew, I knew in every fiber of my being, I was like, whatever else it is, the fear of the financial insecurity. And I, I you know, I was also 25 years old at the time and, mm-hmm. you know, rode a, rode a bike around the city and rented a room in a, a group house. So I didn't, I didn't have a lot to lose at that point, but I just knew that whatever else was out there would not be as scary as the idea of staying in that environment. And, but within a year I was able to make as much as my friends and offices were making, teaching yoga and doing photography and just putting a bunch of odd jobs together. And, and then when I started my coaching business, that increased even more. So it, yeah, it was, but every step of the way, I think everyone in my life was like, when are you going to get a real job? Like this idea that the <laughs> only way that you're an adult is if you have a real job. And yeah. I, I feel like I've never really been willing to sacrifice the life that I know is possible in order to have that job. Right. Um, I don't think I ever will either. My, my partner <laughs> likes to say, uh, you know, I don't think Stephanie will ever go back into the corporate workforce. And I'm so happy about that because it's really owning your truth, right? Yes. And I, and I want to make a note out there that there could be people listening to this who are like, but I like my job and I like working in an office and I like the structure. My best friend's a lawyer and she just like looks at my life and she's like, I would never do that. Like she really likes mm-hmm. like dressing up in professional clothes every day and being a lawyer. And that's just brings her a feeling of, of security and joy. So it's, it's, I think that that you hit the nail on the head that like, it's just doing something that feels like it's authentic for you, where you get to be your authentic self in your work. Yes. And I think that's another part of the gray area that you brought up earlier. It's acknowledging the things that we might like about having a more structured job, or if we are in the corporate space, really owning that we love doing that. And that's totally okay. Um, so I think, right, part of the black and white too, and I am still so guilty of this, is drawing that really solid line between full-time job, working for a corporation, having a secure paycheck versus independent consulting or freelancing or starting a small business and having that be 100% risk. There are a lot of people, and I've tried to get better about this too, who balance between both, whether that means, you know, working part-time in a corporate office while starting a business or taking something on as a side hustle. So I think that um, that's one of the really important components of that gray area is realizing it isn't either or. Yes. Yes. I think that there are so many different ways that we can ease the transition for ourselves, which I, I see as being such a form of self-care that like if you, mm-hmm. if the idea of quitting your job and not having savings and starting your own business is super scary and feels really stressful for you, like don't do that. But, but maybe like explore if there are ways to like, as you say, just transition that job into something else that feels better. And then with time, let things happen a little bit more naturally to get yourself there. Yes. And when I coach other women about exploring that alignment and what feels good to them, something I like to do is called um, mapping out your risk profile. So I think that we all have really different tolerance levels for risk. And I I mean, it's interesting, right? Because on the one hand, it's definitely informed by by the way we grow up, what what our socioeconomic life is like as children and our families. But then I think some of it is also innate. How willing are we to shoulder risk to begin with, you know, just just in terms of who we are as people and what our value systems are, nurture or nature. 
So I think it can be really valuable to ask yourself, what does risk mean to you? What does it mean to take a big risk? Where on the spectrum do you get uncomfortable when you start to think about taking a financial risk or, or even a social risk? You know, sometimes the fear of starting a business or leaving your job has to do with putting yourself out there socially. For me, that was definitely a portion of it. It was, you know, doing all of that business development, sending all of those cold emails. I'm an introvert, so that was scary for me. And it was really asking myself, what risk what risks I was willing to take that helped me um, you know put one foot in front of the other. How did you practice self-care during that time where you were having to put yourself out there in a way that made you feel uncomfortable? I think there were a few things. I was always I would try to be in an environment where I felt pretty safe, I guess. So if I were, sending emails to people who I really looked up to and I was kind of scared about what they would say or if they would reply. I was doing that from my apartment that I loved um, in a place where I felt like I was at home and I felt really, I guess, aligned so that, you know, that part of me could kind of come out in those communications. I think also making it a practice not to take things personally was really helpful to me. So that's one of my tendencies. I take things personally and I am working on it. It is one of those things also that when you start to get on the other side and you, you for email specifically, people email me now sometimes and sometimes I'm just busy and I don't have time to respond right away. And it is never personal. It just has to do with me and my schedule. So I think making it a habit to just remind myself of that was also a way to practice self-care while I was really putting myself out there in a way that as an introvert doesn't always come naturally to me. Yes, that, that's such a great spiritual practice to not mm-hmm. take others' actions personally. It's it's so oh, much yeah. easier said than done, but it, it I think that running my business has helped me to get a, a little bit of a thicker skin. I still I still really like hurt with things sometimes. And it really depends on my mood. Like there are days where I just feel much more resilient than others. And so when yeah. I when I do get like, you know, just little things like seeing that, you know, the open rate of my email wasn't as high for the week or, or something where it's oh, it's I not know. it's not a very mature part of me. It's like the part of me that's sad that people didn't come to my birthday party, you know, like it's yes. and when I when I feel like I take that hard, that's definitely a sign to me that I need to take a break and I need to like go for a walk mm. and yeah, surround myself with familiar situations and people that I know support me and love me no matter what. And go yeah. back and read those old emails from clients where, you know, they were telling me how much the work had helped them. So it's, but it, I, I think it's an unrealistic expectation that we're not going to care when we invest so much of ourselves into our work. If you're running more of like an integrated work-life business, but it, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, we have to go all the time putting ourselves in that. Like we can, I think we can choose when, when we want to expose ourselves and when we need to take a break too. Absolutely. And I think also paying attention to the different types of, um, I guess to go back to this labor question, right? Different kinds of labor that you're performing has helped me as well. So what I mean by that is sending emails or, or doing something where you're putting yourself out there. That's very interactive. You, you are taking that risk. You're creating something in this email and you're sending it out into the world. I found that it was very relaxing to me after doing something like that to just 
do something like read, right? Just absorb information, not worry about formulating my thoughts, not worry about putting myself in a social situation and just kind of focus on the intake. Um, I found that to be really pleasurable and a good form of self-care for myself, that reading, that learning, kind of those quiet activities. Love it. That's great. Well, that that brings me to my next question, which is you have a background in literature and writing and you Mm. bring those practices and values into your work. But I I could see like on a surface level of people being like, but it's business, like you don't need any of those skills. So I'm curious, how how did you come to that you wanted to integrate those those two different fields and what are the results that you've seen from that work? Yeah, well... I guess it started because I always felt like a duck out of water. Um, If that's the right saying, I'm not sure it is as I'm saying it out loud. A fish out of water, maybe that's the right thing. Yeah, I was like, no, duck Um, sounds like, no, fish sounds better. Ducks do go out of water, don't they? Um, So, yes, I always felt like I was among the only people I knew who had this deep love for literature and for reading and for writing. And I also really felt like I was compelled to enter the business world, um, especially, you know, growing up and kind of seeing it from afar. Once I did enter the business world, I, you know, of course, had my series of doubts and ended up kind of leaving to do something more entrepreneurial, which is still business. But um, from, you know, from afar, seeing seeing what business kind of meant or thinking of it um, in a more conceptual way, I just... I loved the di- like the dynamic nature of it, I guess. I really liked getting things done. I'm very action-oriented. Um, so even though I do have this kind of reflective side, I really do. I'm like all into the bulleted emails and the type A calendar organization. And um, I don't know, the strategic thinking, working with clients to get to an answer and then implementing it. All of that stuff really attracted me. So from the time I was like 20, it was always this question of how can I build a career where I'm doing both? I don't think I'll be satisfied if I do something considered stereotypically literary, where I'm, you know, an editorial assistant or something where I don't feel like I have that same fast pace. On the other hand, I can't imagine doing anything that wouldn't involve that reading and that writing. So that's part of why I started my own venture, because ultimately, I didn't really see another way I found satisfying to kind of unite those two sides of myself. And I tried. My first job was at a tech startup. And I specifically went to Berlin because I was really interested in Eastern European culture. And I consider that part of my, I guess, more literary side, right? I I loved reading books that were from that part of the world. My heritage is from there. So it was it was very self-exploratory. But at the same time, I had this businessy kind of job where I was on the marketing team and we were trying to hit these quarterly goals and it just didn't really all gel for me. Something felt off. And when I came back to the US, I moved to New York. I tried to become this management consultant and I was working in the media industry with magazines specifically. So it also had that editorial element, but I was doing business strategy as a consultant. That didn't feel quite right either. I wanted to be the person writing the articles, not the person doing what the magazine should do business-wise. So I I guess I came to the conclusion that I would have to leverage my strengths as I saw them, and it would be a unique combination. I didn't exactly know what to do with it at first, but 
I had to embrace that journey of figuring it out because I didn't see an alternative for me to feel aligned otherwise. Again, it's that authenticity that like mm-hmm. you, you couldn't turn parts of yourself off. So I couldn't, <laughs> I you really had to couldn't. create work to use all the parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it continues to be a challenge in my business as well, because sometimes I, I, you know, I don't always make that smooth transition from, um, business Stephanie into, you know, reading and writing Stephanie. Um, so sometimes, you know, I don't really have other super clear role models for people who have tried to do exactly what I'm doing. And the closest I found really um, are, are other bloggers who run their own small businesses that are centered around some kind of digital community. And they do the business stuff, but they're also doing the creative production, whether that's the Instagram posting or writing uh, content for their blog. That seemed to be a field to me that united both the editorials and creative stuff with some of the CEO responsibilities um, and did it in a way that allowed for a lot of independence. Yes, yes. That's, that's, I mean, that's what I do as well. And it's true. I'm, yeah. I, I feel like it's a really interesting marriage of, of different qualities. I am a journalism, photojournalism background. That's what I studied in school and okay. w- women's studies minor in that. And I, you know, did the Peace Corps and started teaching yoga. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, I just didn't see how it would come together. But when I began this business, it was like all of a sudden I needed the journalism skills like right now. Like I knew how to interview people so I could have a podcast and I, I knew how to write mm-hmm. so I could write my blog post. Um, I knew about visual communication so I could do my Instagram and I did, you know, some of my own design and hired it up to some also some very talented people. But it, I, I like to think about the idea that like running a business is just a ton of creativity too, just of how to do it yeah. in this way that we keep talking about, this authentic way. It's not just a formula that you follow, especially in a feminine way, like just having a baby in this last year for me. I wasn't able to run my business the same way that I had before. And I, yeah, I, I found myself really hungry for more feminine role models of entrepreneurs, of people who had been able to let their businesses transition with the different phases of life and feeling, yeah, like there's a, there's a real, there's a real expansion for all of that for us. I think as we, as more and more women decide that they, they can't compromise who they are. And I see it like so many of my clients have like made work changes and um, it's been pretty powerful to see how much they have been able to make it work and these different degrees of like transition versus like actual radical change sometimes. But I, I think that it's something that we are, are really opening to of how to how to be able to run a business from a place of who we are rather than like an outside place of like what it should look like. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I completely, completely feel what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, and something we really connected about when we talked the first time was about these stories of our like our grandparents and our great grandparents <laughs> and the people that had immigrated over to the United States. And you had gone to Eastern Europe to do this this research and just living there and connecting to that area. And I I was so impressed by that because it's something I, I really want to do for myself as well. But how do you think that informs your work, especially from a feminist standpoint? Oh my goodness. I think it underlies everything. It's just so important to me. And I think it must be because um, I grew up across the street from my maternal grandma and then down the street from my paternal grandparents. 
So they just played a big presence in my childhood. So I was lucky in that way. But my maternal grandma, especially, I just had this bond with her that was so strong. Um, And I think that just seeing how much she struggled was really informative. Not, not, I guess informative isn't the right word, but, but it informed my journey. Um, so she was a Holocaust survivor who came over from Budapest, Hungary in the late forties after the war and had a hard life. You know, she was never quite able to entirely move past what happened during the war which is very understandable. And just thinking in terms of maternal lineage, I mean, I just saw how it affected my own mother and how that in turn affected me. And it's the sense of, I think there really is something to this sense of um, giving birth to something beyond yourself. So not just in the literal sense of having a child, but also in the sense of even if you're birthing anything creative, right? a business or a work of art or a piece of writing, this protective sense that you have around it. um, I think that for me feels like this very powerful thing. And I think it's because of what I, I saw with my mom feeling very protective over her own children, which came from my grandma as a Holocaust survivor, feeling very protective over her family because people were literally taken away from her. Um, so it's obviously, it's like really raw and emotional. And I can even hear my voice as I'm speaking that it can be hard to speak about. But I think this sense of realness and having something, um, something to lose has kind of underlined almost all of the choices I've made. Um, it just makes life choices seem a lot more intense. Sometimes that's a disadvantage because sometimes these are not intense choices. We're really lucky, right? We live in this privilege, or at least I I feel like I'm very lucky. And I come from a place where I can feel privileged to make choices like, you know, do I want to start a business or not? Um, But sometimes I think it's good to kind of feel that really intense um, emotion behind the decisions you make, because it does lead to a lot of reflection, a lot of asking yourself, am I doing the right thing for me? Am I taking advantage of the opportunities I have? nothing is permanent. So am I really living the way I'll be proud of living? Thank you for sharing all that. I'm really touched by, yeah, by the way that you've, you're living it out and the perspective that that has given you. Um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's so interesting. You know, I think, I think we are living at this, at this time of immense privilege and especially as, as a white woman in this culture, I feel Mm -hmm. like I have so much privilege to start a business to, for, on so many different levels. And I think there's this part of me that wants to just kind of be like, well, the, you know, like my past isn't that important or that interesting. And I think that's a little of like how I metabolize white culture is like, like what is white culture even? Yeah. It's not that interesting. And, and yet when I, when I dig back in to my lineage, especially, I would, you know, I think on both sides, there's a lot of really interesting things that have happened of anyone's lineage. But I, my um, grandparents were displaced during World War II. They lived in Poland, what's now Lithuania, and they um, lost a daughter during that time. And my grandfather spent time in a Russian war camp. And there was like years where my grandparents didn't even know if the other one were living and they were reunited. And, and I just like I've lived on one level with these stories, but I haven't really lived them. And, um, and I took this, this training, this doula training, uh, right before I got pregnant. This is before I'd even met Micah. And they, the, the trainer, Nicole, asked us to talk about 
uh, one of our grandmothers and I started to tell the story about like my maternal, my paternal grandmother, my, um, my dad's mother. And I just burst into tears. I didn't even know I was carrying mm -hmm. so much emotion with me. And it was in that moment that I, I really was like, wow, it took so much for them to get here. And like, what, what yes. was it for them to just survive to get here? And, um, and that added this weight to everything. And I, that was like that weekend I decided I wanted to become a mother. And before that, I wasn't really sure, oh, wow. but it took, it took me going back. And I think like what you said about that protective quality, um, yeah, I think, I think our, our family's stories live on with us, the ugly stories and the beautiful stories. And it's like up to us to be able to kind of use that protection of those stories and then to change the stories that, that don't feel in alignment with who we are anymore. Absolutely. And I just, have, I'm noticing as you're saying story, I'm like, yes, it's the storytelling component too, that I think drives a lot of, a lot of what I do that comes from that heritage as well. And as well as, you know, speaking of, of white privilege, which is so important to acknowledge, it's also, I think, feeling a lot of empathy for, for people who are identified as underdogs in society, you know? So people who are less privileged, given our white supremacist patriarchal culture in the United States, versus those who are more privileged. And I think just being really keenly aware of that and acknowledging it and wanting to do what's right, I think that also comes from, at least for me, from my heritage and just seeing what it's like for someone close to you to be victimized and therefore having this just deep empathy and desire to do right by the people who are suffering injustice. Yep. Yep. I, I, I think that's, it's, it's so, it gets so frustrating to look out in the world and be like, does everybody not mm -hmm. see it that way? Like, I know. But then it's frustrating to look back at my own life and be like, whoa, there were just huge blind spots that I didn't see. You know, and each year I'm alive, especially this last year, oh my gosh, um, I really, I see so much more. And there's that feeling of like, God, why, why could I not have seen just how unjust the system is to the extent that it is until now? But I also think that that there's sort of like a collective awakening right now, especially, you know, primarily among people who have exercised that privilege that we can start to see that like the privilege is so limited because we, I don't think we really get access to who we are fully until we are fully there to stand up with people who are more vulnerable than us. And I think that's where I see the feminine becoming so powerful is that the feminine is vulnerable mm. and we've, created a culture that we think that we're impenetrable and we don't want to be hurt. And we, and I, I think it's like a traumatized response that I, yeah. you know, I could go on for a long time about that, but basically we like don't value the feminine because we think it's weak and we don't value minorities because we think they're weak. We like all these vulnerable populations. We think that they need this American dream quotation marks. And, and I think that that's just like a huge transformation that's happening right now around like it's okay to be vulnerable. It's actually really it, like vitally important for our own emotional connections to be vulnerable, that that's strength, that that's a place to lead from, that we can tell stories from that place, we can start businesses from that place. And that naturally, I just think it seems to open our eyes to other people's realities and want and want to serve, not from like an obligation, but really just from a place of like, well, like an abundance, like I have enough and like I want to help you with that too. Yes, mm-hmm, absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. Yeah, I could just keep saying affirmations because I agree, but you know, you know how I feel. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think it's a movement right now, you know, like I think that this is 
like that's I don't think self care is the fluffy thing. I think what you know what you're doing is helping. I think self care is helping people honor who they are, and and create lives from that place. And you're totally doing that, and I'm doing that in slightly different ways. But it's I think it's we're all coming together to really like create a change right now. So I'm really happy mm-hmm. to be in the movement with you. Likewise. And yeah, I mean, some, um, excuse me, self-care is a radical feminist act. And there are feminist writers who are so celebrated, like Audre Lorde, who've written at length about self-care being an act of protest. So for people who are not valued by society and seen as weak, taking care of yourself is a protest against all of that. So it, it's personal and political. Um, and I, I think that realization for me was huge. I remember like circling, highlighting in the book. Um, so I do want to to say that out loud here because I think it's so important and it can be really liberating to see self-care as something unselfish and and really an act of protest. Yes, yes, yes. It's um, thank you for saying that. It is it is really important. And I think it can be just like a metric that we can use when making decisions for ourselves. And that's like, you know, if you're in your job and you don't feel like you can take care of yourself in your job, like like it's a powerful move to change that and not just for you, but for everybody. And you don't have to stay and be miserable and drain all of your energy out of it. And if you're in a relationship that doesn't work, like all of that, like it's, it's not like you're being miserable doesn't serve anybody. Right. Yep. Well, I always like to ask this question of what, what does self care mean for you? And that, that can be just like your most current, you know, up to date moment of what is self care meaning for you right now? Yes. Um, well, I, you know, I guess coming off of that comment of self-care as, as a radical feminist act, um, you know, I might stick with that. I think I'm really feeling that right now coming through this conversation. Yeah, I love it. I, I, I'm feeling it in my life so strongly right now. I'm like, this is the one thing that nobody can take away from us is our ability to yep. value ourselves. And that's like power from inside versus power from outside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been really wonderful to have you here and to continue our conversation, Stephanie. And thank you for doing all the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you, Gracie. And you as well. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been, this has been wonderful. For all the listeners out there who want to learn more about the starting a feminist business and staying connected to your writing, what's, what's the best way for them to do that? So there are a couple of things. If you follow me on Instagram at writing on glass, at writing on glass, then you will be able to download a resource guide that I have in the um, link in my bio. I have 101 different resources for anybody looking to start a feminist business. And it's a free guide. You can download it, put in your email address, it gets sent right to you. Something else you can do is visit feministincubator.co. That's my course website for the four-week course that I offer on building a feminist business. So that's a paid course, and we're opening the doors again for new students late this summer. Um, But you can go check out the curriculum and see if you think it's for you by going to feministincubator.co. Awesome. Well... For everyone who is out there listening, I hope you feel inspired that, um, first and foremost, that you are allowed to practice self-care, that it is not a selfish act, that it is actually a radical feminist act, and that, um, and that you know, that you can take steps towards changing up your work if it's not working for you. And um, I think Stephanie's work is a great resource, so I encourage you to go there and check it out. 
So thanks again, Stephanie. Thanks, Thanks, Gracie. My pleasure. All right, everyone, keep taking care of yourselves. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, this is Gracie with Beautiful Life Self-Care. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I hope you learned something new. If you want to connect more, then visit me at selfcarewithgracie.com. There you can sign up for my weekly newsletter where on Wednesday afternoons, I'll send you more self-care practices, more inspiration, and more opportunity to connect to a community of people who really care about really good self-care. Also write me if you have any other questions or if you have ideas for future shows. My email address is selfcarewithgracie at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. And remember, keep putting yourself first and everything else will fall into place.